starting with, uh, with Rudy Frisch, uh, who's uh, come over from Canada to talk to us, and he's going to be giving us an introduction to the uh, Gold Standard Institute, um, which was started, uh, has been started since the last uh, meeting we had here in November 2008 by Philip Park. So over to you, Rudy. Okay. Well, thank you for being here and making all this possible. Um, I started this business uh, a few years ago. I met Mr. Philip in Hungary and went to Professor Peck at this first gold standard university presentation. And uh, there were seven people around the table listening to what the professor had to say. And I was one of them. And it was wonderful to listen to a man of this caliber talking about his experience with gold, with money, with financial circumstances. And we all just kind of started from there. Now my own uh, experience is mostly personal experience. So what I'd like to say first is one of my teachers, one of my gurus used to say when he started a talk, and he always said, don't believe a word I say. It's kind of like, oh, we paid good money for this seminar, don't believe a word I say. And then he would say, you know, I'm talking from my experience, what works for me may not work for you, listen to what I have to say, and then do what you choose to do. So that wasn't too bad. And I go a step further than that, and I say one of the biggest problems, if not the biggest problem in the world, is that people give up their power. They give their power to the so-called experts. Their decision-making, their thinking, well, you know, Bernanke will decide what to do about money, and uh, the Surgeon General will decide what to do about health, and uh, who was it that the other guy will decide what to do about oil, carbon trading, and global heating, and all this stuff. Think for ourselves. So don't believe a word I say. We are, I, I represent, I'm the editor-in-chief of the Gold Standard Institute, a very libertarian organization, free market, and what our purpose is, in a philosophical sense, is to give people back their power. What to do about money should be a democratic thing. Everybody decides what to do about money, not Bernanke decide for them. And that's how it was under a gold standard. And uh, the other thing is, and I've got a quote here. Um, it was Henry Thoreau who said, there are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil to one who is striking at the root. And of course, what he meant, I think, was that hacking at the branches, you're sort of wasting your time because you chop down the legal here and more grows over there, and you go there and chop that down, more grows back here. Again, in a little step further than that, at the root, things are pretty simple. One day, root comes up the ground, goes up, and then branches, and then you get out there and you get a bunch of stuff. Obfuscation, easy to get lost, which direction are going, are we going, we're not going, up, down? What is money? You know, uh, Greenspan said, well, we can't really define money anymore. Greenspan. Well, I bet to differ. And again, I speak from my personal experience here. When we came out of Hungary, and I'm a confer of Professor Feketa in 1956, the Hungarian Revolution, and I was nine, ten years old, my father paid the border people who were sort of hanging around, waiting to see what would happen. And it wasn't paper money, it was a gold watch. That's what got us out of there. And the Vietnamese people, boat people, those who had gold survived, those who didn't, 
went back. Uh, you know the stories, I don't have to tell you too many US pilots in their survival kits have gold sovereign, not a paper dollar. So gold means something. The question is why? Now there's, this is an investment conference, so I don't want to go too far into this technicalities of money and so on, but people have to understand what investing means and what money means really at the root bottom, bottom line level. And we all think we know what investing is. I'm going to say what I think investing is, and if you disagree, by all means put up your hand. Investing is taking your money, putting it to work, and using it to make more money. Does anybody disagree with that? Okay. And then saving, of course, is taking your money, stashing it away under your pillow, maybe, and kind of piling it up. And then there is speculation, where you take more risk, hope of higher returns. And then there's gambling. <laughs> it's just not very good. So under a fiat system, this thing is all topsy-turvy. Uh, in my father's day, and if you're of the younger generation, it's probably your grandfather's day, there was one breadwinner in every family. Usually the man went out, had a regular job, nine to five, earned money. They had a house, they had food, they had a vehicle. Everything was fine. But something started to happen. And it became harder and harder to make ends meet. And so maybe the father had to end up taking a second job, driving a taxi cab at night. Or maybe the mother, when the children were a bit older, got a part-time job and a second job. And in fact, today the statistic is that in the US at least, and I think more or less the Western world, two breadwinner, two earner families, the average is seven weeks from financial catastrophe. Seven weeks. If one of the breadwinners loses their job, in seven weeks they're, they're underground, they're negative, they're basically bankrupt. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. This is the so-called benevolent inflation that the banks push on us. Every year, your money, my money, and everybody else's money, it's clipped. Two, three, four, five percent. Every year, compounding year over year, costs go up, the value of whatever you do goes down. So now we're at the point where this inflation is starting to pick up speed even faster, and it's starting to really hurt. Before it was, in the first part of the 20th century, it happened pretty slowly. The US dollar was on some level still backed by gold, and the international level after, after uh, Roosevelt. Nevertheless, in 1971, when Nixon close the gold window, it's of course a euphemism for defaulting on their commitments. It's gone like this. And now it's stressed to the max. Went to $2, went to $1, 
Now it's either at the point where it's zero, or perhaps turning negative. Now think about that. Instead of a dollar you borrowing creating new growth or new GDP, it actually is going to cause a reduction in GDP. So you, you run out of space. I suggest some of the people who are talking about that should look at this indicator again. It's one of the things Professor Fekta came out with. So, we talked about investment. Now let's talk about money. What is money? Anybody want to define money for me? Please. Yeah, uh, we need to exchange store value and uh, unit of capital. Excellent. Those are the functions of money. Okay? So I noticed one thing you put means of exchange first. Yes? Not actually store value. Well, you said it first. <laughs> okay, and, and, and I, I think this is quite interesting because people do tend to put it in that sequence. Well, it's just a means of exchange. Oh yeah, it's also a store of value. But if you go to the roots of Austrian economics, and I'm going to digress for a second here. Everybody talks about economics as a business science. And some people really hate economists. And uh, what can I say? You know, you have a 12 economists, and the median forecast is such and such, kind of like what did the 12 guys say, and you average it out, and hopefully that's near the truth. But is this science? Is it a visible science? Or perhaps it's not even science at all. Compare that to physics. Now physics is the queen of sciences, it's the hardest of the heart, the root of everything. But wait a minute, wasn't there a guy called Einstein who turned the fundamentals of physics upside down not too long ago? It went from Newtonian physics to relativity. Everything changed. And then there was a guy called Dirac who came up with some quantum physics. And that changed the fundamentals once more, totally upside down. So all the Newtonian stuff is merely a subset of Einstein and a subset of quantum physics. On the other hand, Austrian economics starts with one human being as the ultimate fundamental unit of the economy, one actor. In fact, Mises' great book on economics is called Human Action. Now, you can't go beyond smaller than one human being. You can't smash a human being to see what makes them work economically, unlike an atom. So in some way, the science of economics has maintained greater stability than the science of physics. Isn't that interesting? So why are the economists coming out with garbage? Well, maybe their theories are wrong. And maybe they're not, they don't understand what drives economics. They're out of the branches with their differential, uh, I don't know, integrals and equations and blah, blah, blah. Instead of the root, Human action. What is human action? I'll give you an example, the, the, the question of value. What is value? And for many years, this was not very well understood. In fact, Marx believed that value comes from labor. And the more labor in a product, the more valuable it is. And then he thought, gee, capitalists don't do any labor. How come they're getting paid? Oh, well, they're exploiting the workers. Oh, and Marxism was born, and a hundred million people were destroyed in the 20th century because of an economic fallacy. hundred million people. And to this day, Marxism is still hanging around. Now, the Austrians, back in Menger, discovered that, you know, value is like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. Value comes from whoever is going to buy the product, not from how much labor went into it. In fact, labor is an expense. 
I'll give you an example. Water is very, very cheap. It's free. It's out there. Just grab some. What if you're in the middle of the Sahara Desert dying of thirst and a sharp Arab on a camel comes along and offers you a liter of water? What will you pay for that water? Where did you back and still be life and death? That water is the most precious thing in your value scale at that moment. So pay. Drink the water. Hey, how about another liter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm still thirsty. Another liter. Oh, how about another one? So I, I can't drink this. But somebody can drink. So I can carry it with you. Okay, so you can. And another, another. Six canteens hanging around the west. Wow. How about another canteen? Oh, no, no, sell me a camel. So you see, what I'm getting at is the diminishing value or diminishing utility of this particular commodity, which is water. But notice the other, the flip side of this is money bought the water, money bought the canteens, money bought the camel. So the marginal utility of money does not decline. This is one of the definitions of money. And of course, gold is that commodity which has the slowest rate of decline of marginal utility of any others. It's marketable. Now, gold has some other properties. It's fungible. We all understand that one piece of gold is the same as any other. It's virtually indestructible, so it lasts forever. And it has a good specific value. In other words, a little bit of gold is worth money on that, you know, using a bucket of coal for money. That won't work. It's hardly any value to it. And yet some people persist in saying that gold is a precious metal. Well, it is a precious metal. It's also a metal. You know, iron is a metal, copper is a metal. None of these are money. Why gold? And how do you, why do you differentiate precious metals from metals? Well, precious metals obviously are rare, they're more valuable, so on and so forth. And why is gold or silver different from precious metals? Well, I don't have a PowerPoint, but if you can see this chart, like you can pass it around, these are bar graphs showing the stocks of gold and silver existing in the world. Somebody said there are two swimming pools worth of gold here that exist above ground. That doesn't sound like much, does it? But the reality is that represents 80 years of mine supply, 8-0. That means people have been accumulating at the rate current for at least 80 years. Of course, that's not how it worked. It was over thousands of years, and it kind of grew. So if any other commodity would want to take the place of gold as money, there would have to be 80 years of supply. Platinum, palladium, all these things have days, not weeks or months, but days of supply. Copper on the uh, London Metal Exchange, they only need 15 days, 17 days. Oil, US strategic supply included, 56, 58 days. So every 58 days, all the oil goes and new oil replaces it. This can't be money. What if there's a, a cut in the supply? What if something happens? Whereas gold, there's plenty of gold, even though from one point of view it's very rare, from another point of view it's 80 years of it. No other commodity comes close. And again, this proves that gold is money. Now there's another thing out there. Uh, what about paper? Isn't paper money? You know, the dollar bills in our wallets, that's what they call money. But I disagree with this. You know, there's a lot of, well, controversy over is it M3 or M2 or M1 or MZM or, you know, cash money equivalents. All this stuff is supposedly has monetary value. Okay, 
There's an ancient human wisdom that says, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. What does this mean? It means a bird in the hand is a present good. It's something you hold. Bird in the hand, the two in the bush are a promise. Maybe you can get them, maybe not. I speak from personal experience here. I have a typical 20th century, 21st century, I have some bank accounts, some equity accounts, with cash, this and that. And uh, I had a disagreement with the benevolent, nice, gentle Canadian government about a tax issue. And um, this is not very long, a couple of years ago, two, three years ago. And one day I went to the bank to take some cash out. Oh, sorry, can't do it. What? I got plenty of money in the checking account. Checking account. No, your assets are frozen. All my so-called money was frozen. Now, is that a present good or a promise? The bank promised me that if I go to the ATM, I can take my money out. And even a promise of instant money is still a promise. So none of this is money. All of it is playing some monetary role. But at the root, if I don't have it in my pocket, it's not money. So what if I have paper money in my pocket? Is that money? Well, today it seems to be. But trust me, it's not. It's a promise. Again, it's a promise. And if you look back in, not very long ago in history, 50, 60, 70 years ago, on the US dollar was written that this bill represents so many ounces of fine gold that coming out, or it was actually silver, with the US dollar defined in terms of silver. So you, it was really a right to walk up to any bank, put your paper note, and take your money. Because gold is the money. The paper note is just a comedian substitute to carry around with a promise that you will get your gold. And of course, back in the last the 1900s, yeah, people believe, after the 1800s, 19th century, people believe this. In fact, Mises, in his great book, wrote, and this is where I caught on to what the professor was talking about, that a mature, well-established claim to gold is as good as gold itself. And I said, no. When I walked through that border, and the gold watch changed hands, I knew it wasn't. I was crazy. And he had the experience, I mean, he'll talk to you about a similar thing, under the Hungarian hyperinflation, uh, you could not get anything for paper, but you could get work on for gold clippings, hundreds of gold. So that was the money. Now, I talked a little bit about the inflationary scenario, and there's a deflationary scenario. Now, by, by dictionary definition, inflation is an increase in the money supply, deflation is a decrease. And it sounds kind of symmetrical, right? Increase, decrease. But is it really? Think about bubbles or balloons. Can you deflate one before inflating it? I think so. I think it's not symmetrical. You will blow a bubble, then it can pop or it can shrink. But if you don't blow a bubble, you cannot. So this deflation only occurs after inflation. It's not symmetrical in time. Monetary inflation I'm talking about. In fact, Mr. Bernanke apparently studied the great deflationary crisis of the Depression, and he knows all about it, and how to avoid it, and how to print more money. And Why doesn't he study the real cause of it? The inflation that took place in the 20s, the roaring 20s, where Benjamin Strong, the first chairman of the US Fed, decided to give a coup de whiskey to the stock market. Inflate. For political reasons, print money, and then of course, 
direct consequence of that was the Great Depression. So let's go back to the last century before the Great War. And I remember my father, and he used to talk about the peace-filled times, the peace-filled times, and his eyes would get soft and he'd glow and he'd say, ah, oh, those days. And of course he was talking about his father's time, where there was no inflation, because there was only gold money, and gold had to be dug out of the ground, very difficult and kind of expensive. So the rate of growth in the uh, uh, money supply was one and a half, maybe two percent. And the rate of growth in the economy was maybe 3-4%. So every year there was 2% deflation. Oh, isn't that scary? Well, what did it mean? It meant if you save some money and stash it away, in a year you worth 2% more, or maybe a bit more, because there was also quantitative as well as qualitative as well as quantitative improvements. In other words, efficiencies of production, uh, better machinery, better farming methods, costs went down, and the purchasing power of the money increased. So you have maybe 4% net increase in the value of your savings. Just savings. That was wonderful. Now, if that wasn't aggressive enough for you, you wanted to do a little better, you would get into investments. And these were really investments, but very secure, very steady, virtually no risk. And the bottom line was the gold bond, where someone would take their gold cash and exchange it for a piece of paper. Well, this paper was backed by truly the whole gold system, and your return, your interest was in gold, and your principal would be returned to you in gold. There was sinking fund protection for the value of your bond if you had to sell it sooner, suitable for widows and orphans. And of course, these bonds earned perhaps 4%. My add that to the 4% appreciation of the gold that they would be redeemed in, Hey, about the 8%. And there were no taxes. So 8% to your pocket. Now, anybody out there have 8% after tax, 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 real return investment? <coughs> no, I didn't think so. Well, that's why it was those days. Unfortunately, World War I came along and legal, legal tender laws and the gold standard was dismantled. And it was not a, gold, a perfect gold standard, but it was a hell of a lot better than what we have today. And um, here we are. Here we are. Today we can't invest. We certainly can't save, or we're foolish if we do. So we're forced to speculate, take risks, gamble practically. Uh, our, our, I guess our forefathers were pretty smart people. They knew what was going on. Now, what do we do here today? Well, we have some experts here about gold investment, and that's fine and dandy. But I tell you one thing that I do, I just do what they did. I stayed in gold and silver. Stash it under a pillow or get a hole in the backyard. Don't put it into a bank safety deposit box because it's no longer in your hands. It's still money, but it's subject to seizure, it's subject to bank holidays, it's subject to all kinds of things. Everybody aware of the British government seizing, I don't know how many thousand uh, safety deposit boxes and crashing them open? Yeah, you heard about that. Same thing happened in uh, California not too long ago. So, you know, a gold coin in the hand is worth two in the safety deposit box. Um, as far as investing, the way it was done back then with the gold bond, this is not available to the, to the little guy, I don't think, I don't know about it. I know it is done on the large, large level, the so-called lease rates and what they say there are lease rates. They're interest. 
and there are bulls, swaths, and trays, and so on, but I don't think it's available. So what we can do is we can speculate in gold back issues, uh, of course, gold miners, and plenty of experts talk about that, so I won't go into it. And gold futures are another way to increase leverage. Whatever you do, be aware that all that stuff is paper promises. Now, my own philosophy is if I have between 5-10% of my net worth in gold and silver, I can afford to take maybe 5-10% of that and risk it, just play in the market and hopefully make a big game. And if I lose that, well, it's not very painful. And I have a possibility for a large game. But any money I make there, some of it will certainly go into more physical gold. So if, you, if I make some nice money in, a, in, in gold futures, some people suggest taking delivery of your gold bars, and this is one way to bring the system down in effect. Yeah, but if you like to walk in front of tanks, uh, yeah. <laughs> because if you take a gold bar for delivery, this is very well known and it's recorded. And it's, it's in the, uh, you know, in the books. And you'll be on the radar screen, and I prefer not to be on the radar screen. So take cash and go out and buy anonymously, stuff it in your backyard. You're investing and you're saving at the same time. And it's also an insurance policy. I mean, if things really go bad and the world really falls apart, I don't know, I'll still have the gold and silver. I can use it for something. And if it doesn't go bad, it's certainly not going to lose value. It's held its value for 2,000 years. And some people say, well, how can you compare Roman times to today? It's too far away. Okay. Compared to Ford Model T, I just read about this on the internet lately, 42 or 43 ounces of gold at $20 an ounce back in 1910 or so bought a Ford Model T, 800 bucks. Today, 40 ounces of gold is worth $42,000, $43,000 by the realized Ford uh, Ranger or whatever it is. So what do you do? What if you had saved those paper dollars, 800 paper dollars today, how much car can you buy for 800 paper dollars? I don't think very much. So, uh, what else can I tell you? I'm, as the uh, editor of this institute, our purpose, our mission statement is to, to, to educate people, to pull the veil aside and say, hey, behind that curtain, there's a little guy pulling levers, and we don't need this. We need to take our own power back. Now, if you look at interest rates, we're going to assess them. If you look at exchange rates, I don't know, they and the Chinese decide, under minimus. If people under a gold standard don't like the interest rate, they simply sell their bond and take the gold and put it in their pocket. And as you know very well, the bond market is huge, huge, much bigger, 10 times bigger than the uh, equities market. So a significant number of people start to actually cash in their bonds, interest rates go up obviously. So they take the control of interest rates is in the hands of everybody out there. And this is one of the one of the mechanisms that the gold standard has, all the feedback loops, maintaining floor under interest rates, maintaining ceiling over interest rates, it all works wonderfully as long as nobody interferes with it. Now what the government and the bankers have done is they cut into these these feedback loops and they kind of control it now. Oh, we wanted to go this way, no, that way. And it's all for political reasons and corrupt reasons, and so on and so forth. So our goal is to educate people and um, let them make their choices. Now, 
Professor Peckett has defined the gold standard as it existed in effect as an adulterated gold standard, not an unadulterated gold standard. What this means is we don't want to go back to the way the gold standard was 100 and 150 years ago. No. There are three components of the gold standard. The gold component, obviously. The real bills component, which is the clearing system, what today is substituted with commercial paper. And the fiduciary component, which is actually printed money. Now, if you realize that U.S. under the gold standard had 25% backing for its currency. 25%, that means for every you know, $100 worth of paper money, there were only $25 worth of gold, this fractional banking. Even the very best currencies like the Swiss franc, only 40% backing. So there's plenty of room to maneuver. Kind of like a ship on a long, loose anchor chain could swing back and forth. Uh, oh, then the gold would bring it back and it would the other way. So there were business cycles up and down. They call them business cycles, just as they call inflation benevolent. But actually, it's not a business cycle, it's a credit cycle. And it's through this fiduciary component that this happens. And that's how the Great Depression started. Money was injected into the system, the coup the whiskey, the boom, and the bust. Now, today, there's no gold anchor at all. So this ship can go anywhere. It's going to end up on the rocks. And I think we're all aware of this. So we want to establish, or we suggest that the world return to an unadulterated gold standard where all the money is at 100% by gold or real bills, which mature into gold within 91 days. Now, some people will say this is impossible. And we're going to talk more about this, the mechanics of this. But just quickly, I don't know how much time do I have left. Anybody know? A few more minutes? Anyway, we all say, what's the first objection to a gold standard? Anybody object to a gold standard? Biggest objection. Color of the gold. Good. The first objection that I hear is there's not enough gold. There's not enough gold. It's impossible. Forget it. You're pipe feeling impossible. I'll tell you something that at first blush you may want to throw rotten apples at me, but tell it. The amount of money in the economy is totally irrelevant. It does not matter how much money there is. I'll give you an example. You ever hear of Turkish lira? Or used to be Italian lira? And it was like a million or a billion or a trillion dollar note. And, you know, a cup of coffee would cost you a million lira, and the average blue-collar worker would earn 20 million lira. The numbers were ridiculous. So the government, in all their wisdom, said, let's chop six zeros. We'll issue new lira. Every million lira will be a one new lira. There were one million as much money in the economy the next day. And what changed? Nothing. That guy still got 20 new lira for his hour work, and a cup of coffee cost him one lira. So in real terms, one hour of labor, 20 cups of coffee. Just the zeros are gone. So it doesn't matter how much gold there is. Now, the other side of the equation, of course, how money gets into the system, that does matter. It's called counterfeiting. Counterfeiting is pretending that the stuff you produce is worth something. Think about this way. Suppose it costs 10 gold ounces and expenses and capital costs and salaries and wear and tear on the machinery to mine and dig out and refine and coin nine ounce coins. 
has come to my mind. What's this business? No. What if it costs uh, 10 and you get 11? So you pay 10, you know, you pay 10 uh, coins in salary and expenses, but you produce 11 ounces worth. Some of it makes sense. So you have a whole the self-limiting, self-regulated, another one of those feedback loops that all dynamic systems must have. Of course, there's no feedback loop in the paper system because it's all arbitrary. You print as much as you want, as much as you can get away with. So the gold standard had that advantage. And counterfeiting means everybody in this room, I suspect, has to work and earn or work for and earn their living either through labor or time or, or figuring something out, producing something, except the counterfeiters. Just kind of print this uh, stuff that looks like money and spend it. Isn't that awful? And of course, every bit of this money adds to the supply of money reduces the value of your money, my money, paper money. Not gold. Gold is impossible to do. Oh, I know. Some people talk about tungsten bars and their tungsten <laughs> contamination. I, I think maybe Brown would have something to say about that. He works for the first name. To me, this is all designed to keep people from buying gold. Really, it's a myth. It's kind of like, well, you know, the IMF has been selling their 400 tons of gold for the 22nd time this year, and uh, let's talk about the price of gold. Forget it. Forget it. Gold is okay. And silver. Now, if you're going to do some saving, there's another fact that that's interesting. I said the value of gold is this monetary value. Some people believe that a consumable, important commodity should be back in uh, money, you know, oil or whatever. Well, in history, the Asignat, the French Asignat, was backed by real estate property. That sounds pretty good. Except. 30 days after the first issue, came another issue. <laughs> and nine days after another issue, because it was too good for whoever was doing the counterfeiting. So you can't really do that. Money has to be money. And interestingly, silver is not quite believed to be as much money as gold is. But it has a lot of industrial demand. There's new use for it every day. It's an antibiotic. It has great properties and characteristics. Well, the gold to silver ratio is around 50 to 1. One ounce of gold will buy you in the neighborhood of 50 ounces of silver. And if silver has such industrial uses, why? It just proved what I said, that it's the monetary value that drives the value, not the industrial value. And in fact, I think that people will come to realize that silver is money. And if you want to be a little bit aggressive in your savings, put some into silver as well, maybe half and half, or uh, some of the more advanced techniques which people will be talking about. Well, we can wrap it up. Okay. So, I guess that's basically what I have to say. And for those of you who are staying for the rest of the week, we'll talk more about this and get into the gears and show you how, yeah, 2 plus 2 is 4, no question. It's pretty simple at the root. And we can build on this. And if anybody is interested in staying, well, you know, Marcus is here. So, any questions? Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, as you know, this stuff is being videoed, and Martha is going to be doing some editing. <laughs> that is not me. And the DVDs will be available um, on our, I don't know if it's our website or Professor Fagan's website, but they will be available the whole session. Uh, actually, if anybody's interested, we may do transcripts, because it's kind of boring watching somebody yakety yak up there for 30, 40 minutes, not much action. You might as well read this stuff. And if enough people are interested, we can have this done, right? Yeah. Anything else? Yeah.
Yes. Yes. I'm interested in the point about uh, why the zeros on here notes can't be I'm sorry, say again? The zeros on here notes, yes. how would you revalue the devalue guarantees if all washes out the same, which is clearly different? Well, the, okay. The, the goal, um, I have had the argument that gold is strong with some people about how the economy is when they're done with gold than they are now. Of course, it serves a lot of the arguments to be talking about the money and the money and gold. But I think their argument goes back to the divisibility of gold. Like, you can't actually deal with the molecules that happen to gold. We've got that advanced scientific people who do that. Therefore, the divisibility is a problem. You end up writing big promises for yes. one gram or half gram or two, you know, and that just gets to... I'm going to read another quote here, and uh, maybe that'll help to address it on some level. This was written by Hans Senholz, an Austrian economist, not too many years ago, 20 years ago. And he says, sound money and free banking are not impossible, they are merely illegal. That is why money must be regulated. The gold standard will return as soon as people realize that honesty is the best policy. As hope of ill gain is the beginning of the fiat standard, so is honest money the mother of the gold standard, or so is honesty. The gold standard is as old as civilization. Throughout the ages, the gold standard has emerged, emerged again and again, because man needed a dependable medium of exchange. And emerged is a nice word I kind of highlighted in here. It's an emergent phenomenon. It just comes about. Nobody invented it. Nobody dictated it. And we don't talk too much about real bills, but real bills are starting to come back under a different name. There were some articles on the internet lately as means of exchange on the commercial level because commercial paper is being squeezed by the banks. I totally agree on the emergent point. There's a very interesting paper I'm sure all of you have seen in the back where cigarettes emerge as a currency in consultation caps. Why? Because it's an emergent currency. Yeah. So you wouldn't have an opportunity to have gold. Sure. Or, but my point was that I think. Some economists would argue that you can't run a successful economy or several nation state type economies on gold, and that's why they don't get away. Let me address that first of all. I don't give a rat's ass about what some economist says. Number one. Because I know bloody well two and two is four. Forget it. I'm talking the real world. Real world. Keynes, you ever heard of Keynes? Sure you have. This theory was wrong. And we're paying the price for it. That's what the world is wrong today. Marx was wrong. Again, we pay the price. So, the divisibility of gold is it's another false issue. First of all, you can very easily use silver, which has significantly less uh, specific value. But it's not happening. Oh, not yet. But it's coming along. I think, and I think that's why the gold-silver ratio is so big, because people are starting to recognize the importance of gold. I told you there are seven people at the first conference. Now there are 70. An order of magnitude increase. As the editor of this thing, I get questions to answer. In the beginning, it was once in a blue moon. And now it's like once a week. And now it's every couple of days. So it's starting to pick up. Yes. You talked about a bird in the hand world too. The bush that yes. has to physically own this metal. And you also talk about real bills. Yes. You made reference to buying from the earth. I how do you get over this business of trust where you're placing your money yes, in trust well, else? Uh, again, why do you trust gold? You know, there's, a, there's some, some crowd of people that says gold has intrinsic value. Well, it doesn't. It's just a piece of metal. It's an element. Value comes from the people who believe in it. 
the value. People value stuff. Why is a diamond worth more? And this was one of the uh, paradoxes that the classical economists couldn't understand. Why is this kind of worthless rock worth more than water, the precious stuff of life? Well, it's because people perceive it that way. That's what it is. If you're in that desert, sure, and if you've got a wife and you don't get her a nice egg, forget it, baby. The beers push the price up of diamonds. But if you want to talk about store of value, diamond is obviously one way to do it, but it's not money and is subject to manipulation much more than gold is. And I think I'm getting shot down here. Well, uh, I think that's a very good place to <laughs> stop. Uh, Rudy, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure.